Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My guest today on One for the Road is an ex-professional hockey player who went down the wrong path into organised crime and addiction. He went through many adversities, including prison, but then made a lot of changes. He is now a global voice in the mental health arena and celebrates six years of sobriety this July. Please welcome Ryan Phillips. So, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on my show, One for the Road. It's an absolute joy to have you on. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you, mate? I am doing absolutely wonderful. One for the road. It was usually about 30 or 40 for the road and then a three-day bender. So uh, let's get rocking and rolling, strutting and strolling there, Davey. I know, mate. You're a man over to my own heart. I just dread to think if we uh, met when we were drinking, but we... We're not now, so that is the huge bonus. So I love to wind it right the way back, mate. Um, There's so much um, that you have to say. But let's start off as you growing up. Where did you grow up and what led you on to your career in hockey, ice hockey? And let's go with it. Well, I'll tell you, I am a nature boy at heart. I grew up in the mountains uh, in North Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And uh, that was my playground Uh, growing up. uh, You know, my grandfather was really in tune with nature. So he actually, he taught me those divine laws of nature at a very young age. You know, he was subconsciously programming my mind with, you know, just the way the ecosystem worked and with the trees and, you know, uh, the way the fish uh, flowed up through the river of the majestic Capilino that I grew up with, uh, very close to all the Aboriginal uh, native culture. And, uh, you know, hockey being, uh, you know, Canada's sport, so to speak, um, I was either in nature or uh, playing street hockey with my friends outside my parents' house or, you know, on the ice at the age of two. Uh, it was like I was born with a hockey stick in my hand. So um, my dominating dream growing up was to be the best hockey player in the world. And, you know, I was just a big dreamer. Uh, my, my wall was like one big vision board of Wayne Gretzky, uh, Mario Lemieux, all the best of the best. And, you know, I would go to bed at night and I would visualize myself, you know, playing with these heroes of mine. And, um, you know, step by step along the way, I left home at the age of 15, probably a little bit too early for this kid as I wasn't really developed uh, emotionally. And up until that point, I had uh, no real uh, issues with drinking, drugging, or whatsoever. You know, my dad, uh, he pushed me hard. He pushed me really, really hard. He was uh, a Canadian national high jump champion that won. uh, He didn't win. He just, he actually was the first Canadian to jump six feet in the high jump. 
Uh, he went to the Olympic trials and blew his knee out. So his dream fell short. And after that, you know, he got a really, uh, you know, he had a very successful business career, but he was really trying to live vicariously through his son, maybe pushing me a little bit too much. And, uh, you know, I, I just don't think that kids or anybody should be pushed at something that they really love to do. So mm-hmm. I took a lot of weight on top of me. Um, you know, the skill and the talent was all there. But, you know, I was always kind of afraid to let my dad down. And, um, you know, that first year away from home was really tough, you know, being so connected to nature and living, growing up in the mountains and, you know, having those, those friends that I enjoyed so many good times with. Now I find myself, you know, thrown out to the wolves. I'm this young kid. I'm playing on a team with mostly 18, 19, 20 year olds. I'm just, I just turned 16 and with the hockey culture, uh, you know, it's, if anybody, uh, out, any of your listeners want to look up the hockey culture, it's decrepit. It really is like, it's glamorous on the outside and, you know, you, you become a, you know, a local celebrity in these small towns that, you know, growing up in junior hockey, which is the gateway to the professional ranks. And it's just revolved around drinking and sex drugs and rock and roll and i was just like i'm just trying to fit in you know i'm trying to fit in with the older guys the uh, the older crowd and you know i was a pretty boy so to speak the coach uh, didn't like that too much he thought i was a spoiled brat and i didn't know how to speak up and i just you know i took a lot of this you know it was a lot of abuse a lot of abuse and it was very, very difficult. You know, uh, it was like, I didn't want to drink, but next thing you know, I, I found that, you know, one led to two, led to three, led to next thing I know, I'm the biggest party or gong show on the team. And, you know, all the older guys like that, I was able to bring the young gals around and it's just that culture. You know, like I said, uh, it was sex, drugs, rock and roll, just like, uh, just like a rock star. That's kind of what the, what the hockey personality was. So I took on that identity that wasn't me. It was a false persona, so to speak. And, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, I got to the point where I was so scared to go into the dressing room. You know, my coach would make me hit a burlap bag until my knuckles bled, you know, skates thrown at me, Vaseline in, in, in my, in my gloves, uh, urinated on uh jiffy marker, you, na- you name it, you know, uh, drinking into blackout, made fun of, I mean, you name it. I'm not trying to play the victim here, but this is the sad reality of that culture. And, you know, uh, five years in junior living in, I think it was close to a dozen different households along that journey of, you know, junior hockey. Um, I finally turned professional at the age of 20. But by that time, you know, a game, which I love so much, that canvas, which was like art to me, became really a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I was just going through the motions, you know, and, uh, you know, talent can, can only take you so far. Um, I suffered a lot of injuries along the way, Uh, concussions, uh, broken, probably 50 plus bones, probably more, all my hands have been busted up, you know, Uh, broke my nose four times that I know all fake teeth, even though I got a good smile, eh? But, uh, you know, you know, what can I say? I've met some of the most amazing people in the game, but my fondest memories really are off the ice, you know, with those characters. And I'll tell you, they're characters. And, you know, I'm very close to a lot of the boys still that I met along the way, you know, 30 plus years relationships, uh, you know, through the professional ranks, junior, you name it. And, you know, the hockey community is very tight. 
you know, just like the sober community. It's very similar. It's like every hockey player I I, I played with has the drinking problem. It seems like it's like at least 95%, but uh, you know, it is what it is. And I'm, you know, eternally grateful that that sport taught me a lot of lessons. I believe that every single person that we meet, every single situation and circumstance, the cause and effect of life gives us an opportunity to grow through those lessons that we can pay it forward to other people. So, you know what? Um, my career was cut short due to what we're going to get into with the marijuana trade. But uh, at the end of the day, you know what? I, I wouldn't change anything for, uh, for, for, for nothing. It, it's given me a platform to be able to speak my truth, uh, talk to younger kids. Uh, it's, it's given me the opportunity to be of service to humanity yeah. beyond the rooms of AA, beyond sobriety and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think, you know, and I say this, I don't want to say, I humbly say this, but I can, I say this with a deep knowing that because I've experienced a lot, it gives me the understanding to understand so, the so-called misunderstood. Mm, I really get that, mate. And, you know, like it, a, a lot of people, they go, I wish uh, I would have given up 10 years ago and whatever. But it's part of me, like what you've just said, that I'm grateful that I got to my age because I learned so much in that period. Um, the decade between my 40 and 50 was horrendous. You know, a lot of solitude, a lot of depression, but I think since I've given up from there, I've learned that I needed to be there to be who I am now. And that's what I'm grateful for. Uh, you know, it, it's I've really learned from that. And I'm hoping like you that I can pass it on to other people so we can help them with this terrible addiction. But your, yours was drugs and alcohol, right? Because mine was oh, alcohol. Oh, God, you name it. It was a drug buffet every night, every night of the goddamn week. And, yeah. you know, um, so, I mean, professional hockey, it was cut short due to adversities and some decisions that I made. And, you know, I was, you know, playing in the United States of America. I met a lot of uh, connections down there at parties. You know, the hockey players were partying with the drug dealers and the rock stars and the it's and what's and so-called, you know, the somebodies that are everybody's. You know, I, I don't look at, I look at everybody as equal. But back then, you know, fueled on ego, you know, I was playing uh two and a half hours away from Canada in a place called Tacoma, Washington and BC bud, which is marijuana. You know, it's kind of a world famous plant that's now legal. One of my blokes uh, came down over a weekend uh, and he shoved about an ounce of weed of this, uh, the notorious BC bud into a, a, a deodorant uh, uh, cap. Yeah. And, uh, you know, back then the borders were really lax. It was easy to get it across the border, especially that small amount brought it to the party. And it was actually at the university of Washington. And so all these guys are like, where'd you get that? Like, we can't get that kind of stuff here. I mean, now the U S is like kind of on the leading edge of like, you know, the whole marijuana movement and whatnot. And this one guy comes up to me, he's like, you can get that. And I was like, Oh yeah, I, I can definitely get that. You know, it's kind of easy. And at that time, no one was doing the big, you know, cross-border jumps. If you had a connection down the States to say unload 10, 15, 20, 50 pounds or whatever, you know, you're running into a, winning the lottery every week. And he's like, well, I can move as much as you can get of that stuff. And I was like, ding. Uh -huh. And, you know, the next thing I know, I'm, you know, 19 years old. I come back to, uh, you know, Vancouver and uh, I got him hitting me up, other guys down the States. And 
you know, I was able to get my hands on it started with one pound, you know, one pound turned into two, turned into five, turned into 10. And, you know, even during my hockey career, it just, it just kept, you know, manifesting where it was like, I was making more money in, you know, one day than I was in, in, a, in two, three, four, five months of hockey. Yeah. And, um, I realized that, uh, you know, I could have done this in anything in life, but it was an opportunity that fell on my lap. And, you know, obviously National Geographic portrayed me as the king of weed. Um, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, I mean, at one point I was buying uh, 80% of the marijuana in British Columbia, um, which is a lot. Uh, you know, planes, uh, Cessna planes, helicopters, boats, kayaks, Zodiacs. I mean, I had fully encrypted Blackberries and a server over in Costa Rica, uh, probably 200 plus people working for me on both sides of the border, you know, fueling our sales channels all through down to Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, you know, our, our best year of business, you know, and, you know, I was, you know, at the top of the food chain running this whole, you know, empire, so to speak. Um, you know, we brought in over a hundred million dollars worth of currency of us currency trading for, you know, that, uh, blessed plant marijuana that, you know, it is a healing agent for a lot of people. Uh, I was never a big marijuana smoker. You know, it was uh, for me, it was, you know, alcohol and cocaine and MDMA was like, was kind of the big deal. And, uh, you know, it just, it was one of those things that just kept growing and, you know, rigs and, uh, oh, I mean, it was, um, I mean, my, my mind, I was, I was so resilient at that age that um, I use the philosophy of, of success, um, you know, however you make that out to be. To me, success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal, doing something worthy. But to me, at that point, it was money, uh, you know, fueled on money, ego and greed. Um, I was the nice guy hockey player that hung out with the gangsters. And, um, you know, I guess uh, that personality kind of shunned through. And I just kept meeting connection after connection and the, and it just got bigger and bigger. And then in the year 2000, you know, I got ripped off, uh, by a, a, a fair weather friend, so to speak. I think he was a little jealous because, uh, he saw the amount of money that was coming into my vortex and, uh, he peeled me for about 275,000 worth of, uh, of marijuana at one of my safe houses. They, did a jacking kick in, they kicked in the doors and uh, I get a phone call at five in the morning. At that point, um, one of our trade routes was uh, I had uh, a bushwhack through a mount through the mountains about two and a half hours outside of Vancouver. And um, I had dirt bikes on the other side of this fence, you know, full on walkie talkies on both sides and whatnot. And uh, he was one of my drivers calls me up and he's like, our safe house got bust, uh, broken into. It's gone. It's all gone. And I just freaked out. You know, uh, my partner at the time, none of the guys that I was working with knew my partner. He was very, you know, high up, uh, so to speak, uh, with uh, the triads. And, you know, um, I was so scared. I was young and dumb and full of adrenaline. And didn't sleep for three days after that happened. You know, uh, guns were pulled out. I had to put that to, you know, like I really, I was good at being able to kind of mend fences, uh, always having to put out fires, <laughs> anxiety ridden and just like, oh my God, is this really happening? And, uh, you know, I took it upon my shoulders. I said, look, we can make this money back in, in one run. 
And uh, he was like, okay. I'm like, I'll do the hike with these guys. And at this point, it got to the to the point where I was just running the ship. You know, I wasn't actually having to like take the stuff across the border myself. You know, in the beginning, you know, the first run I did, I had a, my hockey bag in the back of a Jeep. You know, then it went into, you know, putting 10 pounds into the back of a tire, uh, then modified gas tanks underneath uh, the Ford F-150, blueberry farms, you know, you know, at the side of the border. I mean, you name it. I thought of it. Helicopter aerial maps connecting A to B. I mean, I was literally it was like my job was just masterminding uh, the alliance of marijuana, you know, shooting across the good old Canadian USA border. And on this fateful day. Uh, two thousand year two thousand September seventeenth. It was pouring rain. It was snowing up high in the mountains there, so we got just drenched. And I just knew it. Like my intuition the night before was just like you know streamlining through my consciousness. Should should I do this? Oh my god! I could just feel something happening. But I felt if I didn't do it, then something really really bad was going to happen. And, you know, I guess uh, that uh, that curse became a blessing. I got nailed on the other side of the border with 103 pounds of high grade marijuana, guns drawn to the heads, uh, you know, helicopters overhead. The, the DEA uh, nailed us hard. Uh, you know, the cuffs were thrown on and I, I couldn't barely move my wrist. It was it was not nice. You know, dogs were barking. And uh, next thing I know, I'm loaded into a van. Uh, shot off to the county jail for eight days, wondering uh, how long am I going to be locked up? I, I had no idea of the ramifications, you know, because in BC, it was so accepted. And uh, I said to the gentleman who was actually, you know, I'm, I got cuffs behind my back, you know, and then after the interrogation, you know, thrown into a jumpsuit and into this small little county jail with, you know, crackheads and meth and meth heads and whatnot. And I'm just this jacked up dude on steroids, like thinking I'm the king of swing. Now I'm scared to death on like, how long am I going to be doing in jail? What am I going to say to my parents? I've thrown my hockey career right out the door now. And I literally felt like I was in hell. Mm. And um, yeah, so the, you know, the legal you? Pro- I was, I had just turned 23 I at that you know. time. So, so you was was a pro hockey player then as well. You was yeah, doing I was doing while doing the hockey. I was, I was. And, uh, you know, it was, it was all, like I said, it was all fun and games until the games be- became, you know, you know, the bell rung in, in, in my head, like, okay, I'm involved in serious organized crime here. And I, I was, you know, kind of laughing my way to the bank thinking like, oh, no, I'll just do this for like a few years while I'm playing hockey. I'll be able to put away a couple million bucks. I mean, I made my first million dollars in the marijuana industry at when I was 20. And it was just, it was kind of just like, this is just the way it's supposed to be. And I didn't really care about hockey anymore. So it was like, okay, I'll have early retirement, be able to travel the world, which I did. You know, I've you know been very blessed to experience the culture of 70 countries in my life, you know, and, you know, be careful what you ask for, I always say, because I remember saying to my mom, I, I was like, this is just a medium for, I'm like, I'm going to live my life to the fullest and I'm going to travel the world and I'm going to see and do everything possible in this life. And I did. And uh, prison just became one of those things. I guess that was one of the prices I had to pay. And, uh, you know, two years in a maximum federal penitentiary without seeing the light of day was absolutely one of the hardest things that I ever had to deal with. And I was in there, you know, obviously the Mexican Mexican mafia, uh, white power, 
um, you know, the Crips, the Bloods, you know, so you're in there with the, you know, all the bikers and whatnot, just, you know, gangs and, you know, the stuff that you see in there, it's worse than the movies. It really is. And I know, you know, uh, I don't want to disregard, you know, uh, disregard National Geographic. They're all about entertainment. You know, I got flown to London after I rode across Canada for mental health awareness and addiction. And, you know, they really wanted my story, but they glorified it. And, you know, 21 hours in front of camera with uh, NG, God bless them, but they used an hour. And, um, you know, a lot of that story wasn't able to be told. So, you know, I, I learned so many valuable lessons in the slammer, so to speak, the crowbar hotel. Oh my and, God. That is my worst nightmare. I, I, oh, I, these things, I think I could handle most things in my life. I really do. But, whether I, I was a lifer in a previous life or whatever, I don't know, but prison scares the hell out of me. So when you say you was in that maximum security prison, which you yeah. no doubt deserve to a certain extent, and two years, really, what, yeah. I mean, was your sentence like double that and you would just let out on good behavior or? Well, I got out on good behavior. The minimum mandatory, uh, at first I was told I was going to do 10 years and I was just shitting bricks, to be honest with you. I mean, I was young and I'm like, my life's over. I, what yeah. am I going to do now? And my parents were really embarrassed at the same time. I was the prodigy. I was the kid that was supposed to make it. Yeah. I was the kid, you know, that, uh, that went down the rabbit hole. And next thing you know, like I, I didn't realize that everyone was looking at me with the fancy cars and all that kind of stuff. You know, it was just like, you know, I was like purely living on, on adrenaline yeah. and now I'm in this maximum security prison and people are screaming and yelling at me, new fish, you're dead and all that. And I'm like, you know, I'm trying to stay rock solid and like, you know, trying to be like kind of tough mm. and, you know, I get thrown into this eight by 12 and I was really, really blessed that there was uh, 13 other Canadians that were in the prison with me, they came into my, my cell immediately. And, you know, I, I didn't shed a tear the whole time I was in there. I just bottled up all my emotions and I had to put out that, put that like outer shell, that outer guard of protection around me because I didn't want to seem weak because the people that seem weak in there got mm. preyed on. Mm. And like I said, it's like what you see in prison is like, you know, on the TV and whatnot, that's nothing compared to what it really is. I mean, I saw things in there that uh, would make people absolutely, you know, lose their marbles. But the positive of prison was that I cleaned up, I got sober, I had a very clear mind when I was in there. I was angry because I had a daughter down in the United States of America and they told me, you will never be allowed back into the United States of America again. And that crushed me mm. because, I mean, here's a guy that was, you know, played hockey down in the States and then, you know, the whole party. And I mean, I'd be up for three, four days, wake up on a tarmac in Los Angeles or uh, you know, Las Vegas, I mean, somewhere down the States and I have an eight ball of blow in my pocket and a bunch of MDMA or who knows. I, I, mean, I just cleared customs. I just, where are we? Oh, oh, we're in LA. Oh shit. And then we go on a ripper for six or seven days, you know, hitting the Viper room and all over Los Angeles. And, uh, I mean, it was a circus sideshow, but, uh, it put me in my tracks real fast when I went to prison. It was, it was, it was humbling after seven and a half months, basically of having the blanket over my head, yeah. um, I met this little Japanese bloke in there. He had seven aliases. His nickname was, one of them was Tojo. Tojo, George, uh, Macho, we got all kinds of different names we had for this guy. And he was like a little real life Buddha. 
and he actually kicked on my on my cell my cell door and i was about seven and a half months in and he said phillips get the hell up get up and he was 56 years old at that time and i was like what i'm just like i'm just taking it easy george just just leave me alone and he goes get up come up to my cell here and he literally ran that prison with his mind and he saw something in me and so i went up to his cell and he he introduced me to all these old timers that he was buddies with and he said you know what kid he said just because you're in prison doesn't mean that you have to be a prisoner of your own mind so i'm going to challenge you to something he goes i want to start teaching you about tuning into high and finer vibrations of the universe i mean i think at this time I mean, I'm kind of like, I knew that we created our own reality at a real young age. I was, I remember talking to my mom. I didn't know about law of attraction, law of vibration or anything like that, or like the layman terms. But I remember telling my mom at at age 11 on the way to hockey practice, I was like, mom, you know that we create our own reality, right? And I remember breaking that down to a T. And then obviously, you know, years later and all this stuff like goes on in your life, you know, life experience. Now I'm with this Japanese guy after, you know, being depressed and resting all day and scared and weird and whatever the heck, you know, you know, he started teaching me how that whatever we think about, we bring about, you know, literally teaching me the law of vibration subconsciously while I was in there. And my mind was so attuned because I was so, I was clean. I was, you know, like everything had been kind of cleaned out. Like, I mean, I was using hard before we went in there. It was like, I, I was a circus sideshow and we started writing poetry and I figured out real quick that I could actually write poetry. The first one we did was on mountains. And then we started building on that. And he became like a mentor, a teacher while I was in prison. And, um, you know, we stayed in touch for years after that. Uh, sadly enough, but uh, it is what it is. You know, pr- uh, prison's like uh, college for criminals. And uh, I just got more connections while I was in there. And like I said, I was angry because, you know, not being allowed back to the States again was going to destroy the fact of me seeing my daughter, being yeah. a father. And um, I would literally, I was like, okay, well, when I get out, I'm going to be an actor. Okay. Because, uh, oh, no, I'll just go play hockey in Europe. Because, uh, no, I'll, actually, you know, I'm just going to start sending more weed across the border because now I have more connections, more ways. And uh, I've come up with a lot more ideas. And so at night when I was in, when I would literally... I wouldn't sleep a lot in there. I would sleep with one eye open and I would have these headphones that I got off the commissary and you find out who your real friends are real quick when you end up in a joint like that, literally the joint, (laughs) Uh, not the smoking one, the one that you have to go into uh, for being a bad boy. (laughs) And um, I would literally close my eyes. And I remember this guy that he was one of my cellmates. I had eight cellmates while I was in there during a two year uh, span, close to two years. He, he was like, you're going to be like one of the biggest bud dealers ever. You're going to be one of the biggest guys. Like when you get out, you're just going to start doing this and that. And I was like, I don't know, man, whatever. But it's obviously it was something that I knew that I could do good. And since I wasn't allowed back to the States again, it was like all this. St- it just, again, it started falling on my lap and I would start manifesting in there. I was like, he was like, you're going to be doing 500 pounds a week. And so I started thinking about that and like, I'd be listening to music and I was the big party guy outside of that before. So I'd see myself partying, traveling the world, 
uh, you know, all this money coming in and sure as all shabanga, two or three days after I got out of prison, I, there was a card from this guy that I met in there. His name was the Pengi. That was his nickname. He'd be like, ah, how you doing, kid? And he was older and he really trusted me. And I had this card waiting at my parents' place. And after getting the whole speech, you need therapy, you're institutionalized, mm. da, da, da. I was, no, I'm not. I'm fine. Uh, this is before, uh, you know, this is when pay phones were still a thing. Um, there was a card there. It said, dear Ryan, call this number from the Pengi. So I went down, got a calling card. He was in Portland, Oregon, in the United States at the time. I get on the on the blower with him, and I was like, Pengi, I'm out. And he goes, thank God, kid. And I was like, I'm like, so what's up? And he goes, tomorrow at the Dover Arms Hotel. It's this, It was this old strip joint uh, just outside of Vancouver. He goes, you're going to meet this buddy of mine called Silver Fox. Me? And I was like, with, yeah. oh, you. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought you dyed your hair blonde there, Dave. <laughs> uh, anyways, so I'm just like, you know, I'm walking into the unknown here, right? And uh, But I was full of piss and vinegar. I had no idea what the, what the heck was in store. He told me in there that he would send money up to buy product instead of me having to buy product of my own to send down. And plus I was broke. I came out, I had no money. I lost it all. Mm. And, um, you know, I, th- that next day I, I, I go out to the Dover arms hotel. I meet this guy in his seventies. He hands me a tire out of a Range Rover. And it was like literally a, a one minute transaction. Hey man, how you doing? Nice to meet you. You're friends with, uh, you know, Charlie, the Pangy, da, da, da. Uh, gives me this big tire that I can hardly carry. I threw it, throw it into the back of my truck with my buddy. And he goes, the directions are inside the tire. And I'm like, okay. So I tried to get the tire open with a, uh, with a buck knife. That didn't work. And it just so happened I knew a mechanic that had done a little bit of work for me before with modifying these gas tanks and whatnot. I did have a lot of connections with a lot of things. And uh, we opened the tire. There was uh, 280,000 US in currency. And it said, have 100 pounds ready for two days down the road. You'll be meeting this guy at this place. And well, so uh, that was pretty easy. Uh, Grabbed the money and uh, turned it into Canadian currency, you know, flipped it over with the exchange, made a quick 80,000 bucks, two or three days out of jail. And uh, that kept going on. I started building it. And then three months later, I was a millionaire again. And then it just kept building. It was crazy. And, uh, you know, he would come up here and we'd party. And I mean, he was really into heroin at the time. It wasn't my thing. I did try it twice in my life. Never banged it, but I did try it. And uh, yeah, it was just it was just one of those things where it was like, okay, that uh, now I guess uh, this is what I'm doing. And then it's just growing literally uh, growing in abundance and not a lot of people had the connections that I did. Mm. So um, yeah, it just like really just got huge real fast, but the bigger it got, the more dangerous it got, you know, the more gangs that started figuring out that, you know, I was behind this massive operation, you know, having to, you know, get, you know, my accountant involved. Uh, He quit his job. My my accountant quit his job to, to, to work for me, you know, putting together all the numbers and the books with the whole weed thing because we were bringing in so much currency. I didn't even know. I couldn't count. I didn't know how much money I had. You know, our, our best year of business, we pulled in over a hundred million dollars worth of marijuana business. I, I mean, 
I, I couldn't count it that fast. So, you know, can I ask you a question I'll, though, Ryan? It's like, do you, do you think because you weren't allowed back in the States to see your daughter, mm-hmm. do you think that's what t- changed it for you? That you, you had that two years in the slammer and you yeah. said that you learned such a lot and you was in touch with um, vibration and stuff. And then you, you come out and realize you couldn't go back in. Do you think if you had have gone back in and seen your daughter, that things would be very different? Um, I really believe that everything happens for a reason and everything's in synchronization. Mm. And I had to learn what I had to learn to learn what I had to learn. And complete humility really is where I stand today. And, you know, it gave me the medium to be able to take care of her from afar. I was able to take care of her mom. You know, she grew up with having everything that she ever needed as, as a young girl, as a young child. Um, you know, her mom was able to bring her up here. Not so much, but as you know, I got to see her a little bit. It was very sad every time I had to say goodbye. Mm. And, you know, and this is at a point where I'm at the height of the game. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling in, you know, you know, yours truly was pulling in sometimes half a million dollars a week cash. Mm. And, you know, my spending habit was out of control. It was like easily 150 to 200,000 a month I was spending on just partying, mm. you know, you know, I was paying for all my friends, you know, and it was like my real friends, right? You know, none of those people are in my life today. Not uh, one. They're all the gone. Thing. All that money's gone. Yeah. You know, the minute I made a decision to actually change my life after it got so big, the threats on the life, the lie detector test, being accused of stealing, you know, hundreds of kilos of cocaine when I wasn't even in that business. But it was like the minute that people found out how much money I had, I became a target. I had a target on my back. Mm. Um, I did have a wrecking crew behind me that protected me, but no one's untouchable in this world. Nobody, you know, uh, Pablo Escobar got smoked, right? So what would make Ryan Phillips any different? Mm. And, um, you know, it got so big and there's, there was so much damage that happened that it was just something innately inside me. I think it was the addiction. I actually, I know it, you know, I, I was drinking out of control, you know, masking and, and bearing and suppressing all my emotions from past. Mm. And I just, I crossed the threshold. Uh, it became where, you know, the Ibiza's and the Cancun's and all these, you know, the biggest parties in the world and the crystal and all this crap just meant nothing anymore. And no amount of money could ever fill me up. All the mansions, all the cars, all mm. this, you know, the, the crazy, like, you know, the, the ego, you know, the, it was just that, that pain body was hurting so bad, but it was telling, you know, my, my inner guidance system, that internal compass, so to speak, was just screaming at me that I was meant for more mm. to give back to humanity through my adversities, through the teachings that I'd learned along the way with the abuse, with, with everything that, that, I, that I'd been through. And I'm not playing victimization here whatsoever. I am here in this world in this time space reality to be of divine service to the people of the world who are suffering in silence in any way i know my purpose i know that so um marijuana dealing and sending or whatnot i mean i never sold a pound of marijuana in canada everything went southbound it taught me a lot it taught me a lot about business people relationships trust um and basically you know getting to know who the hell Ryan really is, mm. you know, beyond physical form, you know, like we're just a spirit inside a physical body, to be honest with you. That's, that's my belief. 
And so being able to actually have that power of knowing that comes through our consciousness, knowing that we can create from the formless substance, you know, I mean, there's one substance really that creates everything that, you know, basically thoughts become things, you know, and powerful things at that, especially when they're mixed with definiteness of purpose and a burning desire to be, do, or have. And at that point in my life, when I got out of the game, all I wanted to do was be of service. And I was, a book fell on my lap. Um, the Secret had just come out in 2007. And uh, I was like, God, okay, I've been living the law of attraction my whole life. I like really get this whole deal. And um, I wrote down after picking up a book from a gentleman named Bob Proctor, who actually forwarded a book that I wrote. He became, I said, I am going to meet Bob Proctor, all this kind of stuff, whatever. So everything I wrote down always came true, you know, because I believed it. Whatever, you know, the mind can conceive and believe the mind can achieve. And so I wrote down my dream at that point after I got out, you know, I was very blessed. I had all these properties and money still to, to do whatever I wanted to do. You know, I, I, I just wanted to be happy. And away from all this BS that was so dangerous, you know, losing 50 plus friends to murder, you know, I don't know how many countless people I lost to overdoses and whatnot, you know, God bless AA, NA, the rooms, uh, the fellowship, the camaraderie that I met, you know, in those early days of sobriety. Yes, I have relapsed in my 15 years of recovery, but, you know, I stand strong today, you know, just uh, over five years sober that I can really look back and say, I know why I relapsed because I had to learn more lessons. And today I don't even have the slightest inclination, even though I don't sleep a whole lot, (laughs) um, you know, to pick up any drink and go hard because I was a double fister and uh, put more nose pack in my beak than uh, probably Tommy Lee. Actually, I shouldn't throw him under the bus. He was a great rock star, but uh, you know, <laughs> um, you know what, Ryan? It's like this whole this whole uh, conversation is I'm worn out because it it's chaos. It's absolutely chaos, but it's got yeah. a beauty to it as well because of what's come from it. You know, and we spoke the other day on the phone, and I sensed immediately what a what an absolute great guy and honest, lovely guy you are, just by two minutes of of us chatting, you know, and that's why I wanted to get you on today because what's come from all that and your chaotic life and your drugs and your prison and your hard drinking and parties is the service that you do give back now. And I'd really, really love to start to talk about that for, for what you've done since you've stopped all that is incredible. It's, um, you know, sometimes I have to pinch myself like it's just a big dream. And because, you know, I believe that, you know, dreams can be transmuted into physical reality quite quickly. And it's all about the biology and the power of belief with that mind of ours. You know, even though I've uh, had uh, many concussions, maybe they knocked me into some sort of sense too on a vibrational level. And, uh, you know, um, after reading Think and Grow Rich uh, by Napoleon Hill, um, there's principles in that book, 13 principles to be, do, or have whatever you want. And uh, the main principle that caught me uh, that, you know, Bob Proctor put out there, he said, get a card. It's called auto-suggestion, the medium for influencing the subconscious mind. You know, and the subconscious mind is obviously for anybody that's in psychology or not, 
you know, over 10,000 times more powerful than the conscious mind. So through repetition of affirmations, I got this card and I wrote on the card, I said, I am in the present moment, so happy and so grateful for being allowed back in the United States of America again to see my daughter. And I would read that card. As it said, I had to blend the emotions because we're driven on the emotions of love, sex, and romance. And being able to blend those emotions in together with absolute belief and certainty would actually transmute itself into its physical reality. And so what I did is, I mean, I must have had seven or eight of those cards over a two-year duration. You know, they'd uh, wear out. I mean, I, I would read it when I was on the potty. I'd read it in the shower. But I would read it with so much emotion that next thing I know, I just started vibrating at this level where I was attracting all these people into my life. You know, I, I met all those people from The Secret. I met them all. The Secret is no secret. The secret is whatever the mind can actually put out there and broadcast, you know, the mind's a broadcasting and receiving station for the vibration of thought. So the more I put it out there, it would come back in its, in its physical manifestation very, very quick. So, um, you know, I read that card over and over and over and over again. Then I find myself over, uh, I, I'm in Southeast Asia doing a film on happiness. And here's a guy, ex-hockey player, ex-marijuana smuggler that's uh, made a few mistakes along the way and uh, I'm all of a sudden I just you know my heart opened you know I you know I have this open heart and all I want to do is give and be of service and on the back of that card I put serving others giving back love faith you know like all those positive you know those positive words that have a vibration to it and I just, you know, next thing, like I said, I, I'm in, uh, I'm in Laos, this small little, uh, city, uh, uh, Laos a country, but I'm in this little city called Wang Prabang. Nice name, eh? Wang Prabang. <laughs> and so I'm skipping rope outside this bungalow and I get a phone call from, uh, an actress friend out of, uh, out of Los Angeles. And she saw what I was doing um, on Facebook at the time. And I just actually got on Facebook again. I, you know, I always take these social media breaks. Sometimes they can be for years. And, you know, I was doing a project. So I was like, you know, what? I'll go back on Facebook. You never know. And, you know, I'm just, you know, talking to people. And she's like, Ryan, I see what you're doing over there in Southeast Asia uh, with happiness at this film. She's like, this is incredible because I was doing these little like short little three minute videos and, you know, I'd film on the Facebook. I wasn't like blasting it out there, but I did intend on this film being watched worldwide. I did. And she's like, I'm actually riding my bicycle with 20 other riders um, across Cambodia to help raise awareness for the eradication of human trafficking and child sex slavery. And I had absolutely no clue about that cause. I didn't realize uh, the validity of it, uh, the disgustingness of that trade, that business. And she's like, would you like to ride with us and show the positive aspects? And I was like, absolutely. Anything to do with kids, anything to do with giving back, if we can show the positive aspects of making change and being global change agents in this world, I'm all in. And, you know, and so uh, next, uh, I'm thinking all these the, these uh, people that are going to be cycling across the country of Cambodia 
or like pro cyclists. And like, you know, I, I hadn't been on a bike since I think I was like 10. <laughs> and so I, I fly, uh, fly out the next day from Lao to, um, it was, uh, Nom Pen. Nom Pen was, uh, the capital of, uh, it's, that's the capital of Cambodia. And I was like, I got to train for like, we had three weeks until we had to do this ride. And I'm on the bicycle every day, just pedaling and pedaling and pedaling and trying to get my butt in shape. And, uh, you know, sure, sure enough, uh, it, it came uh, bike day. I met some of the most incredible people in my life that I'm still very connected with. And we rode with all our hearts and, uh, you know, across the country of Cambodia, which is so beautiful. I met so many amazing souls, all these kids, you know, jumping out of nowhere. And it was just love at its, at its highest form. I kept reading that card every single day, you know, and the footage that we got was just so incredible as well to show the love, you know, going into five different shelters and just, you know, the tears were streaming down the eyes and just, you know, when you're doing something like that too, it's like the people that you're doing it with, you become very close to those people in such a uh, in a very uh, short amount of time because you know you're you're doing it right from your heart, man. And you know um, it reminded me so much of my own youth too. Like you know, not nothing to that extent, but the I, I could really relate with the abuse, you know, because there was a lot of abuse in my life. And sure as all uh, uh, the dream uh, that I put out there and broadcast on that card. God, I, you know, I, I met, uh, you know, the head of the organization. Um, her name was Somali Mom, and she had a shelter uh, that she had built uh, with the help of uh, Barbara Walters, Queen Latifah, and that it was called the Afasip Center, and it housed uh, probably, uh, God, probably seven, eight hundred kids at the time, and she uh, kind of got breath of the, uh, that she got wind of that I was coming in and what I was doing. We got to be very close friends and uh, the Department of Homeland Security found out that I was doing this ride. So now the, the, the DEA finds out that Ryan Phillips, you know, one of BC's and Canada's biggest marijuana smugglers is, uh, you know, riding across Cambodia for kids and human trafficking and child sex slavery, which is like a global epidemic. Yeah. Um, yeah. I uh, finished the ride up. And it was a three week ride. And I realized at that point how much awareness can come through action and how many hearts you can hit along the way. And I flew out after this little party we had. It was like a celebration party. I'm sober at the time. I'd been sober for quite a few years. And um, I'm in Chiang Mai, Thailand the next day. Flew out that night, 6 a.m. I get a phone call. Uh, it was my dad and, um, I open. he goes, open up your email. So I open up my email and I remember like it was yesterday. It said today we can rejoice as a family, as you have been granted access as a humanitarian back down to the United States for business and for pleasure. And I just broke, I was like, oh my God. So I auto suggested myself for two years yeah. and I transmuted my dreams into physical reality through those principles that I read. Oh, that, and amazing. that is Yeah. So, um, and then at that time I was so excited, you know, I called, uh, you know, dad, we had a little chat balling my eyes out and it was like, okay, now it's time to uh, go surprise my daughter. 
And uh, that we did. Uh, we set up a camera uh, outside the house. She had no idea that I'd be knocking on her door. I've seen it. It you saw it. so no, you can't moving. That shit, right? Literally. It's so moving. I'll tell you what I'll do, mate, because there's, there's going to be people on here going, I want to see it. So I'll put a link on the show notes after. But what what happened then? You knocked on the door. I knocked on the door and with a rose. I had a, a, yeah. a big, uh, long stem rose, of course. And, uh, you know, Sadie, my beautiful daughter, you know, she's actually uh, a year sober. She's gone down uh, some pretty dark uh, times the past uh, four years. But at this point, you know, she was uh, she was 12 at the time. And she literally thought she saw a ghost. She looked at me for about a second and then she just jumped into my arms. And I tell you, I mean, spinning her around, gave her and just it was like I just it was like just the dream came true. I was, you know, all that is, and it all came through divine service and that power of belief. And at that point, I never looked back. I just, I woke up every single day, just, you know, just like, just being so grateful. And I I just, I asked same, you know, like, even though I only slept a little bit last night, you know, how can I be a service to the world today? And then what's going to show up is what's going to show up. And what I'm going to do is what God intends me to do through that pure divinity. And, uh, you know, I, I did that ride uh, the next year. And, you know, I, I've done a lot of work over in, you know, with that, you know, the whole sex slavery stuff, uh, which is, you know, awful. I, I never took a public speaking course ever in my life, but I was very grateful. I was asked to do a TED Talk uh, on that subject. So, you know, uh, being in the trenches and riding and pulling kids out of brothels and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. uh, led to, uh, doing a Ted talks on it. Next thing I know I'm on a stage in front of 10,000 people. Uh, I think you could hear a pin drop that day in, uh, at the theater where, where it was, uh, you know, I don't think there was a dry eye in the crowd. Um, I forgot the whole speech that I was going to say it. And I pretended that all the people, that were in the auditorium theater at that time, I pretended that they were the children that I rode for and it just flowed. It came out. I was the last speaker out of 16. I mean, all these other people were so prepared. I'm sitting there and, you know, uh, ready to go up on stage. The last lady that was out there, she would, she'd been speaking for years and years and she blew her speech. She comes off and she goes, Oh my God, I'm so nervous. There's so many people out there. And I just took this big, deep breath and I just marched on stage. And I was like, I'm doing this for the kids. Uh, and, um, you know, it happened. And, uh, you know, I just basically, you know, realized that, uh, you know, just everything that I would write down, everything that I would intend, you know, just that power of belief and how powerful our minds can be and that we can rise above adversity and truly become something that is greater than what we have actually been in the past. You know, we can create different versions of ourselves in the quantum field, so to speak, too, you know, not just in this 3D reality we live in, really tap the source of that infinite intelligence or that inner genius that we have inside of us. We all, we all have deep reservoirs of genius that reside from within. And when we can expand that creativity, uh, you know, it's that infinite spirit that really just, you know, it expands outwards and we attract through the vibrations of the ether, those people, places, things, and circumstances that allows our life to flow in a certain way that we intend. So now with that being said, 
I <laughs> you saying all that to me is really I've got goosebumps, right? And my wife will have even bigger goosebumps because she is so into this. You know, <laughs> I, I follow your wife on Instagram. I think she's amazing. She Both of you guys are. Yeah. Thank you, man. So honestly, it's what I believe in. And we're, we're on, a, on an incredibly smaller level than your TED Talk, I've never been trained to do public speaking or anything, right? And I spoke in a pub a few weeks after becoming sober in front of everyone drinking. And I was talking about not drinking, right? And I was the second to last one on. And I was absolutely shitting myself right and i got up there the speech that i planned all went out the window and i thought well i'm here for a reason to tell my journey and where i am today and afterwards it it blew up you know people come over to me they they were like incredibly open so warm to me and i thought god you know what there's i got a message to give out here you know i really have got a message and and then recently I, i talked in a college and I felt the same, but I thought, why am I doing this? Not for me or my ego. This is to help these kids live a better life and see it for what it actually is, you know. And then everything changed me. And when I got up there again, could hear a pin drop. And um, it was like, I am where exactly where I am supposed to be now. This is what I'm meant to be doing, you know. And, and that's why I'm so passionate about this podcast, things I do that, you know, I really hope that doesn't come across as anything to do with ego at all because I'm feeling quite grounded, you know, but it's so important. And I'm so grateful, like you said in the beginning, to have had the experience I have in my life to to be able to share that and learn and, and push forward with it, you know. And this is part of my journey as well, like yours. You know, to do what you're doing uh, is. Well, I love it. it. I mean, we're, we're obviously on the same vibe, or else we wouldn't be talking right now. So, you know, th- this, you know, we're doing a podcast right now, but we attracted each other, obviously, through uh, you know that that the great vibration of the ether yeah. out there pulled us together into the swing. And Plus the you know, five hundred thousand dollars you offered me as well, but we won't talk oh, about yeah, that. I forgot about that. That we shouldn't tell that we shouldn't tell the audience that you're laundering money for me. <laughs> well, anyway, but, so, mate. So, what, what have you got? I mean, you've written a book, right? Yeah, you know, I, I wrote a book. Um, you know, I, I produced a, a film, and you know, I, I was very, very. I mean, I hate talking about myself. I, I, I think, you know, I, I just truly believe. You know, just like you said, it's like if we can just touch one life and pay it forward. And if, you know, just one life can be better because we, we breathe that day or we, you know, whatever, you know, it's just, it's for me, I I take so much, I get so much inner happiness when I can just put a smile on somebody's face in the moment, in that eternal now, so to speak. To me, there is no past. There is no future. We're creating our future in the present moment. So it's like, you know, as we speak right now, we're, we're actually creating our future reality, you know? So it's, you know, when we talk about law of attraction, all that kind of stuff, we have to be very, very careful with the words we speak because the body's always going to follow the mind, you know? So whatever we, it's like I said it before, whatever we think about, we bring about whatever we focus on expands. So being expansive creatures that are of habit on this planet called earth, you know, it's like we have to watch what we speak because like it's, you know, we're speaking into our experience 
And, you know, we can either have a great experience in this, you know, physical life or, you know, we can create a life of misery Yeah, and, you know, it, it can teeter up and down. So, you know, we have to, uh, uh, you know, we're emotional creatures uh, as well. So it's like, you know, sometimes we have to really, really, you know, get grounded and, you know, watch what's coming out of our yap because, uh, you know, whatever we speak usually comes true pretty quick, especially <laughs> these days. Oh, I um, right. Oh, I love your uh, terminology coming out of your yap. I mean, my yappelstein. But, yeah. yeah. But look, you got something really, really brilliant coming up in uh, May, right? Are you riding across May Canada? 25th. Absolutely. So um, in 2019, first of all, we'll go back to this. So I was misdiagnosed with bipolar uh, about seven years ago. I had absolutely no idea that I had suffered a lot of concussions due to hockey. Uh, I got sucker punched at a bar uh, once and my head rang off the curb and I was in an ambulance for, I was knocked out for 15 minutes. I was lucky I didn't die because I had two, I was double fisting at the time and I got suckered. But uh, and then about uh, an hour and a half later on my own reconnaissance left the hospital and I had a, you know, bill in my nose and double fisting again, Christ, I don't know how I'm still alive, but uh you know, beyond all that, I realized that obviously from that first ride, second ride and whatnot, like I said, you know, how much awareness can come through intended action from the heart. And so 2019, I rode across Canada and four other countries, all for mental health awareness. Four in Asia, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Vietnam is such a beautiful country. And I know that they've taken a lot of heat, obviously, because of the war and whatnot. But the people there are just absolutely beautiful. Mm. And um, after I did those four rides, I was I felt a call to duty, so to speak, and a responsibility that I needed to go do my own country, which is the second largest landmass in the world, Canada. It's a big, big country. And, uh, you know, I started off at, in the Pacific, at the tip of the Pacific. And uh, I am not a cyclist, by the way. And, uh, you know, we got a film crew and uh, I rode my bike across Canada and, uh, you know, was very blessed. It got a lot of uh, national attention. Um, I didn't uh, throw it out there wanting to be famous or anything like that. But, you know, people did take recognition or rec- and whatnot, whatever. I was able to give a message. But, you know, the message was for millions of people around the world, billions now, actually, to reach out for help if they're suffering in any way. And at this point, I think it's bipolar still. You know, after the ride, I find out uh, about a year or so later, because I wasn't feeling so hot and my, my, my brain was starting to play a little some tricks on me. I went for a CT scan. I uh, got some more uh, diagnosis from uh, one of the head uh, top uh, neurologists here in Canada. Uh, from the Canadian Brain Performance Center that I'd suffered probably close to 50 plus concussions over the course of my professional sports career in and out of sports. You know, but there's a few fights in there. Yeah, I admit it. I was a bit of a circus sideshow too, right? So blah, blah, blah. You know, so I started getting the right treatment done for the concussions. And so uh, 2019 was the primer and uh, it was for mental health awareness. Now, I'll be starting on May 25th, uh, going from the beginning, the Terry Fox Pavilion, which is the, you know, the, 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 the tip of the Pacific. And uh, I'm going to ride my bike 
all the way to the other end of the country and we'll be filming the whole thing. Uh, I came up with a name. It's uh, We Can. Wow. So We Can, and it's going to be a ride for wellness and connecting humanity. And so it's not Ryan's ride at all. This is a ride where everybody can get involved. I want as many people along the way to join in. It's a, it's, you know what? I look at this as more as connecting humanity and peace and really, really eliminating the stigma, which is mental health or mental illness. I don't believe in mental illness. I believe that, you know, obviously we can take, we take on, you know, certain uh, belief systems and whatnot. We can go through depressions. Uh, but at the end of the day, a lot of this mental, of these mental illnesses are misdiagnoses. And really it's just, helping the misunderstood become understood that we all operate a little bit differently. And some of us may just have chemical imbalances. You know, for me, I'm on the, I'm on fight or flight a lot. I'm on the fight because my amygdala, which is the seat of the emotions got its bell rung so hard that, you know, I'm, I'm keyed up a lot, but I can also look at that as a power too, because it gives me a lot of energy in the present moment to, you know, bolster out that energy stream of like what I want to do. And I, I just don't give up. And so, uh, you know, I'm no saint, but uh, you know, I, you know, I realized that, you know, put my ego aside, you know, this is something I feel called to do uh, on, on a much bigger level this time, even though I'm going across Canada, this is a global movement and, um, you know, getting as much people involved around the world to help with this and be part of is really is, is the dominating dream right now in this present moment. And it's not going to stop until I start and finish it. Once I'm done Canada, I'll be going across the United States for the exact same purpose. And then once I'm done in the United States, um, I've actually, uh, the Rotary Club of the world uh, have made me an ambassador. So um, they want me to do the UK. Yes. So I'm more than happy uh, to jump over to your side of the world. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll put you on a sidecar or you can ride beside me for a little bit because uh, that'll be just awesome. Mate, I'm going to join you next to you. Oh, yeah. Bike. I don't want to be on a sidecar. I want to be on a bike next to you, bro. Okay, great. Yeah. Let's awesome. do it. Let's do it. Do you know the nothing. irony is, is that when I stopped drinking, within seven months, I rode my bike to Paris from London for child slavery. No way. Yeah. And we oh raised 38,000 quid. Uh, there was about 12 of us. Uh, and it was unbelievable. And some of the stories we heard on the way was like, God help us. You know, like we started at Greenwich uh, and look, I was 20 stone nearly, um, you know, 128 kg going up a hill and everyone whizzed up the hill at 80 kg. And I was like Shrek <laughs> on the bike. But do you know what? When oh, we got right. to the Eiffel Tower and that, we sat there and it's like, oh my God, this, the money we've raised for this is incredible, yeah. you know. And another guest I've had on the podcast, Ollie Ollerton, is um, ex-SAS. He's been on SAS Who Dares Wins. He he did a lot of stuff out in Thailand as well for child slavery. So it's really close to my heart, mate, and, and mental health as well, you know. So honestly, 100%, I'm going to be getting on that bike next to you. Awesome. I can't I can't wait. You know what? This is uh, This is going to be such a beautiful journey. And, you know, the, when you get into the whole spectrum of, say, mental health, you know, you, you have to put child sex slavery in there as well. I mean, yeah. the psyche of those kids, 
I mean, the, the reintegration into society for those children, if they've been saved, you know, a lot of these kids, are, they, they, they die too young. Um, you know, many of them are servicing up to 20 some odd clients a day. And, you know, I've seen the worst of the worst, especially over there in Southeast Asia. I know it's a global epidemic, uh, even with boys as well. It's not just girls, but a lot of these kids are, you know, two and a half, three years old, and they're taking on clients because there's a misperceived notion over there that having sex with a virgin cures the HIV virus. And, you know, so what they do with these kids is, you know, these guys will come in, they have AIDS, they give it to the young ch- child. And, you know, after the kid, uh, you know, they, they, they have, you know, uh, you know, forn- fornication uh, not consented, uh, they sew up the child's hymen and, uh, you know, and then the, the child is good to go again, uh, unfortunately. And it just, it's, it's, a, it's a vicious cycle, literally. And so I believe that these cycles that, you know, we do, um, you know, there's, uh, there's no I in team, um, can have a, a huge, huge impact with, uh, being a global change agents in the world. And I, you know, I'm just, I I just know that I can't do things on my own like this. I did Canada alone in 2019 and it was lonely. Mm. I think I had to do that a lot to conquer my own mind and a lot of my own demons. Uh, But this time I'm just, I'm so, I'm so grateful that people are starting to just gravitate. I mean, I haven't even put it out there. I haven't even gone to mass media yet and and thrown it out there, but I guess people have been picking up on my thoughts you know, I got people buzzing me saying, we should do a ride again. We should do this. We should do that. And, you know, I haven't even got the website up yet or whatever, but, you know. It'd be all um, right, mate, because this podcast is now, we're in February now recording this, but when this goes out, it will be before May, right? Mm-hmm. So everyone listening to this podcast will then be able to follow your journey. They'll be able to donate. They're going to be able to support you by sharing. I can share. My community oh, be so share. Beautiful. You know, that we, we need to get this out there. And, and yeah. you know, when, when you come over here, it'd be even bigger over here because I'm going to make it one hell of a party. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and without right. a beer and the drugs, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> without but, the beer and the drugs. Don't worry. I'm, I, I'm better at doing the Patrick Flatley sober than I am inebriated. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know, mate. But look. Um, honestly, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, and I generally try and keep these to an hour, and we've just gone over because you're so fascinating oh, wow. about your your journey and your story and your incredible passion for what you do now. I'm Thank so you, grateful, and I'm so grateful we've met because I know that this friendship is is going to go on and on and on. I can feel that. I can too. I feel like I've met a friend for life. Even the first time we spoke, uh, I was like, there's just something special about David Wilson. And, and that, you know, then I, I know your wife's story, you know, the, the, the struggles of life is what builds character. And I'm eternally grateful that you had me on and, uh, you know, for your, for, for all the, your, your audience, uh, hello, I send you my infinite love. And, uh, you know, I'm, you know, it'd be really cool as, you know, doing some lives and stuff as I go across the country with all the people and showing the people of the world, what we can all do together to make this world a better place. And that's really at at the end of the day, is there anything better than trying to make this world a better place with wonderful people? That's what, you know, bringing people together, 
as as a oneness you know as is something that uh it's really a, it's i think it's it, it should be close to all our hearts yeah, you know i i, connect, I agree totally attached to nothing attached to nothing connected to everything yeah <laughs> uh, absolutely and, and you know there's uh Yohan hari uh he's written a couple of books and whatever and his um, quote is, um, the opposite of addiction is connection. And I agree with that because when I was addicted to alcohol, I was like, I was on a desert island. Uh, and when I gave up alcohol, I felt alone because I hadn't shared what I was going through with anyone. And once I started to meet like-minded people like yourself, connect with them, they understood me non-judgmentally, that I started to flourish and grow, you know. Um, and I'm very blessed now to be living the life that I am now and, and meeting people like you and the, the others in the community is just every day I wake up grateful. I really do. As Absolutely. soon as I open my eyes, which as we know is early in the bloody morning because we both sleep about two hours a night. <laughs> we found well, that. When you gave me that message last night, enjoy your two hours of sleep. I was like, Oh God, here we go. <laughs> then it planted that seed. I know. I put it out there in the universe, didn't I? So, oh yeah, thanks a right, lot. So I, to end this, I want you to say, enjoy your full eight hours of solid sleep, Dave, and then there we go. Absolutely. So, thank you very much, Dave. Um, I, I was really looking forward to even doing another episode. Just like yeah. whatever we can do to make, like I said, whatever we can do just to make a dent in this world Absolutely. to make it a better place. So, thank you, Ryan. Love. You've yeah, been an amazing you. guest. Thank you so much, mate. Speak so. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can now download my app, Sober Dave, on the Apple and Google Play Store. And on there, you will find lots of tutorials tips and support to help you stop drinking and there are also meditation audios food plans and chat forums you can also find me on instagram at sober dave please remember to join me for next week's episode but until then thanks for listening and have a great week